0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro with the Legal Consulting Group.
1: And hi, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group.
0: The Bar on Healthcare is available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Apple Podcast. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review, good, bad, indifferent. We reply to them all, although to be quite honest, we're more partial to the good ones than the bad ones. But again, we appreciate all our listeners and all your feedback. And with that, The Bar is open. Uh, Employers this week got three gifts that they were really looking forward to the entire year that certainly we have been looking forward to the entire year because if you've been tuning in to the last few broadcasts, uh, you probably heard us talking about these three taxes, and they're all there wrapped up in their repeal ribbons. And Carrie, what's under the tree for employers?
1: So the year-end spending bill that must be passed by this coming Friday, and, and we should just say for the record, we are recording this on Wednesday, December 18th. This year-end spending bill includes three tax repeals that I think employers will be happy about. One is a repeal of the Cadillac tax. One is a repeal of the health insurance tax. And the last is a repeal of the medical device tax. So let's spend a few minutes to talk about the Cadillac tax because it's something we've talked a lot about over this past year. It's a tax that that no one liked. The union groups didn't like it. The employer groups didn't like it. And so there was a lot of bipartisan support for getting rid of this tax. And it finally came to pass. the repeal language in this uh, spending bill. So as of 1-1-2020, the Cadillac tax will no longer be in effect.
0: And this, you know, in terms of, of bipartisan support for this, that's really putting it mildly because I can't think of anyone that really liked this tax with the exception of one group that we'll get to in a moment. But, you know, again, as you pointed out, uh, you had a wide range of employer groups, management groups, labor groups. Aon was also involved in that, full disclosure. We were involved in the effort to get it repealed. And it really has become, as we've been saying for, and Kerry, actually, you and I have been saying this for almost since the Affordable Care Act went into effect. This is the tax that everyone had to plan for as healthcare professionals, but that in reality, the government was never going to collect. Why have we been saying that? Because... First of all, back in 2009, when the ACA was being debated and they put in these taxes as a way of paying for the coverage under the ACA and the benefits under the ACA, first of all, the benefits came first. The benefits were kicked in in the early part of this. The taxes were put off until later. In addition, the Cadillac tax was a tax that was really put off. This was, as Kerry pointed out, 40% tax on high-cost employer health care plans, these so-called gold-plated medical plans. Back then, the rationale was these are plans that you know are only for executives. They're only for people who you know have, have all these gold, this gold-plated medical coverage, really shouldn't be part of public policy. We should it's tax driving those. Up driving up
1: the cost of health care.
0: Driving up the cost of health care. Well, it actually didn't just catch the Cadillacs. It also caught health care plans of every possible variety. It became a question as, as people did the planning, as people looked out at the Cadillac tax, this became a question of, it wasn't whether your health care plan was going to pay this tax. It was a matter of when, whether you were a Cadillac, whether you were a Volkswagen, whether a, you were a Yugo, whether you were a, a Schwinn bicycle with, you do know. Do they
1: still make Yugos?
0: I, 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 I thought you were going to say, do they still make Schwinn bicycles? I certainly hope they do because I had, you know, I had a Schwinn bicycle when I was a kid, but I was never taxed on it. And, and under this, your Schwinn bicycle medical plan would have been taxed eventually. So the second thing being, if you intend to collect a tax, you probably should at some point collect the tax. When this was first discussed back in 2009, it was supposed to become effective in 2011. The final version of the ACA that was signed into law kicked the tax off until 2018. Now, if you intend to collect a tax, you probably don't kick it off to a different administration and a different president. But that's what happened with the Cadillac tax. And then there was a history of proposals, not just to repeal it because of the bipartisan opposition, but also to delay it. And it got delayed until I think it was 2018 and then until 2020 or 22, You know, something like that. So this was, was something that, that continually got, got pushed off. As you said, nobody liked the tax, but I, I actually take that back. A couple of people did like that the tax. The economists liked it. The economists liked it, first of all. They, the economists loved it because their theory was it's all compensation. And if you take a dollar of non-taxable medical compensation and you fact tax that, the employer will turn around and pay that as a dollar of taxable wages. Was that ever going to come to fruition?
1: No, no, the expectation was never that there was going to be a dollar for dollar wage increase for employers taking away a dollar of healthcare benefits to meet the requirements to not have to pay the tax. The other thing that happened in the last couple of years as the tax continued to get delayed was that many employers came to the realization that they were just going to pay the tax. They weren't going to implement the policy rationale of reducing their health care benefits in order to avoid the tax, they were just going to pay it. So that was going to lead to an increase in the cost of health care coverage, because now you have this additional tax and employers were just going to pay. For and, it, and it wasn't going to affect
0: just the executives. It no, was going it to affect going- the rank and file as well. That's exactly uh, right. So that was something that I don't think the economists did anticipate, and they certainly didn't factor in that employers, rather than pay it as non-taxable medical wages, are going to turn around and put it into research and development, or turn it over to other non-taxable benefits, or just possibly just keep it, or keep a keep Your a good stock. portion of it, you know, or so, you know something along those lines. But some people did oppose the repeal, and it's a first of all, I want to say it's a fine publication and an excellent newspaper. The Washington Post editorial this week said that this was a the repeal was a And I'm quoting here, monumental exercise in fiscal looseness that may add $500 billion to the federal debt over the next decade. Again, I'm not sure that, you know, based on all the what we think are shaky assumptions built into the the Cadillac tax and these other taxes, I'm not sure that would ever have come to come to fruition. But yeah, uh,
1: I, I agree with you on the Washington Post. It's generally a good paper. But I would say in this case, the editorial board sort of bought the argument of the economists that had come out in favor of the Cadillac tax without really doing any independent analysis on how that was really going to play out in reality.
0: They take a shot at, well, they actually, they actually take a shot at, at everybody. They took a, take a shot at, at President Trump. They take a shot at the Republicans. They take a shot at Democrats saying that this will undermine the signature policy accomplishment of the Obama administration and compounding the damage, they write later, is the fact that each tax also served legitimate health market policy goals.
1: Yeah, and we've talked about the health market policy goals in terms of it really impacting the legacy of the Affordable Care Act. Well, I would say that, you know, very strong, strong supporters of the Affordable Care Act like Congressman Joe Courtney would probably beg to differ with that statement. I think, you know, not to speak for him, obviously, but, you know, it it makes sense that if this was really going to impact the core tenets of the Affordable Care Act, this would not be something that Congressman Joe Courtney was uh, so instrumental in getting passed in the House. Yeah, he was
0: a big supporter of this. And actually, you know, just about every Democrat in the House and the Senate, you know, came out for, for this repeal. So I think that's number one. Number two, I think it's fair to say over the last 10 years, and this will be part of, you know, if not the first, at least one of the first podcasts we do in 2020, we're coming up on the 10th anniversary anniversary of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, And the Affordable Care Act is still here, despite what I think is fair to characterize as a pretty sustained assault, both politically and judicially, on this. It's been taken to court half a dozen times. And economically. uh, And and economically as well. There have been efforts to uh, cut back the funding, change some of the funding in terms of insurers. The ACA itself is still there. You know, now in terms of funding the ACA, funding the cost of the ACA over the last couple of years, it's true, these taxes, whatever whatever the assumptions are with respect to the revenue we'll collect, these taxes won't be there. To pay for the ACA, but it's also true over the last ten years, the ACA isn't costing as much as as it was originally projected. You look at the exchanges who did not register, you know, registered fewer than less than half of the number of people that uh, they thought they would they would enroll. Uh, therefore, the subsidies that would be paid under the exchanges are much much less than originally projected. In addition to that, the Medicaid expansion only about two thirds, a little more than two thirds of the states, you know, actually expanded Medicaid. So the cost of the Medicaid expansion was not as as great as before. So the a- ACA is still out there. I think you look at the failure of repeal and replace. You look at the fact that Medicaid expansion is still there and, and, and that the benefits. And more
1: and more states are expanding. And
0: more and more states are looking to expand it, whether they're doing it through government wanted it or some sort of you know work requirements thing. It is a part of the structure of life. And interestingly enough, now with the discussion going to Medicare for all, it now appears that, that keeping the ACA is actually the moderate position. You know that mend it, don't end it. You is actually one of the least well, one of the least radical you know alternatives that that are being offered out there. And I think finally, because there are certainly some other taxes that we want to talk about in terms of their impact here. You know, one of the questions that we've been getting from clients, you know, over the last couple of years, certainly as the discussions of tax reform come into play, as the discussion of a flat tax comes into play, as you th- see things like caps on the state and local taxes as a deduction, clients are looking at this saying, you know, are we going to tax, is, is Congress going to tax medical contributions to employer health care plans? And I think, you know, although it's difficult to make predictions here, I think it's fair to say that at least for the next couple of years, taxing health care plan contributions is off the table. If we as a society can't agree as a policy matter that we're going to tax high cost and medical plans, we certainly aren't going to agree that we're going to now say, okay, not only in addition to the high cost medical plans, we're going to tax every medical plan. We're going to take all that money and, and turn it into, into a revenue source. I, I just don't think that is going to happen. So I think you can look at that provision of the income tax code as being fairly safe, just given the way the Cadillac tax, you know, has now uh, been brought to a unlamented end, or at least it will be once it passes and once the once the president signs the bill. The other aspect of this that I think is is going to be interesting is, you know, and again, just a programming note here. Tomorrow night uh, is the umpteenth Democratic debate, and healthcare will no doubt figure into that uh, discussion. Uh, Senator Warren uh, issued a Medicare for All plan uh, about a month or two ago, in which I think one of the platforms there was that the Medicare for All plan would be funded by taking 98% of...
1: Funded in part.
0: Funded in part by taking 98% of what employers currently pay for healthcare and paying that to the federal government. Basically... Taxing healthcare plan coverage because when you take something away from an employee and send it onto the government, it's hard to characterize that as anything other than a tax. So taxing healthcare coverage, I, I think you know they might want to take a, a red pencil to that particular line of the Medicare for All projection uh, and probably do some recalculations there because I just don't see how you know you end up taxing healthcare contributions after after the Cadillac tax goes down.
1: And in addition to the Cadillac tax, there were a couple of other taxes, as we mentioned before, that were part of this bill that have now been repealed. So the health insurance tax, that will be repealed as of 2021. Um, So it will still be in effect for 2020, but as of 2021, it will be repealed. And the medical device tax has also been repealed as of uh, 1-1-2020. Again, assuming that the president signs this bill into law, which all expectations are that he will do that. The medical device tax was also also had a lot of bipartisan support for that repeal. So so that and that's also something that employers and other business groups and and uh, other organizations had been pushing for for a long time. So it's sort of interesting to think about how hard different parties have worked on repealing all of these taxes, and then it all got done at the last minute. <laughs> It, it feels like,
0: yeah, well, well, it feels like that way because it did. It did, in fact, it did get done at the last minute. You know, a lot of this just runs up runs up to the deadline. And, they and not facing- they weren't take
1: anything away from groups and included that and and members of Congress like Joe Courtney, who have worked incredibly hard on this issue for a long period of time. But, yeah,
0: that's true. But they were facing, and let's be clear about this, one reason for the rush is that they were facing a deadline of Friday, uh, once again, be facing a government funding crisis. So not wanting to go into the Christmas holidays uh, with the government funding crisis, you know, everything did come together. And, you know, again, watching sausages and laws get made or probably not, it probably doesn't, doesn't, you know, help your appetite for either
1: one. A couple of other things that were part uh, of the, the tax extenders bill that is also being presumably passed and, and signed into law this week, include paid family and medical leave for federal employees. So this does not impact private employers and any type of mandated paid leave that private employers have to provide, but it does um, provide for paid leave for federal civilian employees. Military employees already had paid family and medical leave. So this is for the civilian federal employees. And then this bill also extends the tax credit for employers to provide paid family and medical leave. So as listeners might recall, this was part of the 2017 uh, tax bill, probably just two years ago, right? The Mm two-year anniversary of that bill is this month. And that had a program in there where employers could get a tax credit if they provided paid family and medical leave to their employees. And that has now been extended through 2020. It was uh, slated to expire at the end of 2019. Uh,
0: You you know, we're heading into 2020. We're heading into one election year. So we're going to hear more about Medicare for all. We're going to hear more about Medicare for all who want it. We're going to hear more about, you know, the ACA, you know, keep it, don't sweep it, mend it, don't end it. But one thing that is going to be, I think, on, on the agenda for both parties is some sort of, of federal family and medical leave, because that is something that, that you see proposals from both sides of the aisle, you know, distributions possibly from 401k plans in order to provide uh, additional monies. You see this, the federal leave bill, a uh, federal leave program that you just talked about, which, could serve as a model for some sort of uh, you know nationwide bill. This is something that is going to get onto people's radar screens. And if it's not part of legislation during 2020, it is most likely going to be part of going to be part of the debate. Uh, yeah,
1: absolutely. And, and, you know, this is, you know, we've talked about this before, but this is a, a real problem for multi-state employers, because in the absence of the federal government acting, the state and local governments are jumping in and passing their own laws. And for employers who have employees in a lot of different states, states, trying to track all of the different requirements for all of these different laws is really challenging.
0: Yeah. So Rachel Arnett, uh, who handles this in our group at Aon, calls it whack-a-mole. Once one comes up, you have to knock it down immediately. Well, things that were knocked down uh, and we've we've talked about a lot of the good news here, so now we can get maybe to the to the bad news side of it. You know, the coal and the stocking uh, that comes along on this surprise medical billing surprise. We don't seem to have a surprise medical bill.
1: Yeah, and that's a little bit surprising, just because it was an issue that had gotten a lot of bipartisan support. And I guess I should clarify that the bipartisan support was that patients should be held harmless and that there should be something done on this. But the uh, dispute was over what exactly should be. T- Done. So there were certain groups who favored an arbitration type provision for how to pay out-of-network providers. There were other groups who favored a a set rate using median in-network negotiated rates as, as the payment for these out-of-network services. And we had seen a flurry of activity early last week. The, the Senate Help Committee and the House Energy and Commerce Committee had announced that they had come to a compromise around how to address these out-of-network payments. And, and the compromise was essentially for payments under $750, a median in-network negotiated rate would be used as the payment. But for payments over $750, then a party could take this to arbitration. The catch was that a party could not take a payment issue to arbitration more than 90 days after a decision had been reached in their, or I guess shorter than 90 days from a decision being reached in the prior arbitration. So kind so of a
0: cooling off period It was there. a
1: cooling off period, it was a way to limit the amount of um, disputes that could be taken to arbitration. So it looked like maybe we would see some movement here at the end of the year based on this compromise, but the House Ways and Means Committee also has jurisdiction over this issue. And they essentially later last week came out and said, well, hold on, we're not so sure we really favor arbitration, but didn't really announce any specifics or details around how they would do that, um, how they would address it, and if there would be a certain threshold of what could be taken to arbitration. And um, there was some concern by Ways and Means Committee members that that the process was moving too quickly and they wanted to slow it down. Now, since we've been talking about this for a good year, I'm not sure why it was being too quickly, but you know that's okay. real you, you time are, and not congressional You are time. too young
0: to remember this, but there used to be a commercial in the 70s for a, an investment firm called EF Hutton. And the tagline one was, "When E. F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. When the Ways and Means Committee speaks in Congress, everybody listens." So they are—they are the, the proverbial eight hundred pound gorilla. So if they're going to bring the process to a to a halt, at least for 2019, uh, it is not surprising. Two, I'm sorry. Go. Well, ahead.
1: I, I was just going to say, um, and you know, the other thing that we didn't see any real action on this year, or at least as part of this year-end spending bill, is on prescription drugs. Yes, yeah, I was
0: just going to say that. Yes, prescription drugs and pricing. There, you know, you've got a lot lot of, you know, again, everybody thinks the price should come down. How are we going to do it? There is, uh, as of today, the latest Trump plan, uh, which is not really a plan, but it's a plan to make a plan about possibly allowing re-importation of drugs from Canada, which has all sorts of regulatory implications to itself, such as, you know, everything from the role of the FDA in that to the impact on, on the Canadian drug supply. Because last thing you want to do as Canada is create a, a shortage of, of prescription drug medicine because you're exporting it south. Uh, so prescription drugs and, and the cost of prescription drugs is something we're going to see in, in 2020. Uh, in addition to that, the question of, of price transparency. Uh, we had a couple of regulations from uh, the administration the last month uh, on, I think, final rules for hospitals, proposed rules for healthcare plans and insurers. Uh, the final rules for hospitals were immediately taken into court and where they are likely to stay for at least for at least some period of time. Not likely to get a court decision on that until sometime in 2020. And one thing that I'm waiting for is a final decision from our friend, our friends in the Fifth Circuit. Uh, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, Texas v. U.S. Uh, we still have not heard from them as to whether or not the Affordable Care Act is still constitutional after the repeal of the individual mandate. So I was hoping for something before Christmas. Don't know whether we'll get it. But certainly as we go into January, just a reminder to our, our listeners, that will then be the one year anniversary uh, of Texas v. U.S. So uh you know, really if you're if you're listening out there, Santa, and you have any pull down to the Fifth Circuit, you know, please gift trap a decision on Texas V US and, and leave it under our tree. So
1: maybe w- maybe wait. Not on Christmas.
0: Not on Christmas. Yeah, because the last thing we want to do is come back, I, you know, and, and just we'll record some sort of special podcast for that, uh, depending on what happens. So, last call, you know, just a just one one particular irritant for me, and I'm just going to say it up here, and I realize it's controversial, uh, but we have a we have a Star Wars movie premiering this Friday, and uh, I will just say, as as someone who was there in 1977 watching the first Star Wars, these movies miss Harrison Ford they really do. Uh, Harrison Ford, I think, was the true star of this franchise. Uh, the best movies always had Harrison Ford, so I'm, I'm hoping against hope for a good one on this Friday. But the la- last couple have, have kind of left me cold where they where they haven't had Han Solo there flying the Millennium Falcon. And it's also worth listening and also worth thanking all of you for being listeners this past year. And for all of us here at Aon, I'm J.D. Piro,
1: And I'm Carrie Willis.
0: Thanking you for your time this year. And until next year, the bar is closed.